good to see you all this morning, and if you're visiting with us this morning, we want you to know that we're glad that you're here and hope that you've felt welcomed by the uh, church family here and have enjoyed the music. I want to thank Zach for his faithfulness to um, the Lord in these songs this morning. It's been very um, obvious to us that the Holy Spirit has spoken to him this week because the songs, every song that he chose was perfect. And um, he had, the Spirit of God was leading him. And I just thank him for being submissive to that and thankful for the songs this morning. Were they an encouragement to your heart? Yeah, just a, a wonderful, wonderful reminder of the uh, strength that we have in Christ. And so just thankful for that this morning. If you would join me in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter number nine this morning, Hebrews chapter nine. So we want to remember a few things as we get into this um, study this morning, which will um, encompass the first 10 verses of the ninth chapter of Hebrews. The main, the main uh, goal of these uh, scriptures is to uh, expound for us, to help us understand Christ's Christ's significance being over the um, Old Covenant or the New Covenant being better um, than the Old Covenant or Christ being better than those things that were meant to point to Christ. It's, it's really meant for us to see Christ as being elevated and significant um, so that we can keep our focus on Him, that we can maintain an, an attention as we walk through life, that we can maintain a, an attention on Jesus Christ. It truly is our only hope. Every, every one of us not only finds peace and joy and strength in difficult, uh, in, in, from Christ in salvation, but we also find strength and joy and peace from Christ in difficult times in our life. And so this is meant to, to elevate Christ um, above those things that in the Old Testament were meant to point to him. When we talk about this, um, this morning, we're going to do a little bit of a comparison between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, which are, a covenant is an agreement, okay? Just like a, if you make an agreement with somebody, you sign a contract and you say, here's, here's our agreement and here's the part that you play in the agreement, here's the part that you play in the agreement, and here's the ultimate result of the agreement, Right? So that's the idea of a covenant. There's an old covenant that was in the Old Testament, and there's a new covenant that's in the New Testament. All right? The, the interesting thing about the covenants is the old covenant was built around the participation of two people or two individuals. One is God has his role, and the, and the people of Israel have their role. And they both had to perform their role in order for that covenant to be in place. And ultimately, that covenant led to intimacy with God it led to fellowship with God. And we want to remember that God created us. Uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter number one, God created us primarily so that we could fellowship with him, so that he could display his glory through fellowshipping with his people. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't God's um, desire or his fault that we forsook that relationship and fellowship and decided to pursue sin and, and selfishness like Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter number three. 
But God created us for the purpose of fellowshipping with him. He wanted to have a relationship with us. He wanted to have fellowship with us. He wanted to commune with us. The Bible says that every day he would come into the garden with Adam and Eve, that perfect place where there was no sin, and he would walk with them. And, you know, it's like going on, I go on, I go on walks with my wife every once in a while. She's always saying, honey, you want to go on a walk? And, and this week I went on a walk, and I, I, I enjoy those times, but it's, it's, it's sometimes it's infrequent that I'm able to do it because of the busyness of my schedule. But if you can just picture that, that, that time where you just go on a walk with someone that's very special to you, someone that you have an, an intimacy with, someone that you have a relationship with, someone that you love and you care for and you just like to talk to them and you just walk and you just walk and, and keep on walking and you talk and you communicate, that's the type of relationship that God created us to have with him. And where God says, hey, you want to go on a walk and you just go and I mean, you can just kind of picture it together. And you just walk with him, and you just fellowship with him, and you commune with him, and, and you just have an intimacy that's very, very special. That's what the Garden of, Eden, Garden of Eve was like. But when Adam and Eve sinned, you guys remember the story, they immediately hid themselves from God. There was no longer this fellowship, but now there was this, there was this condemnation. There was now this breaking of this relationship. Isaiah tells us that our sins have separated us from our God. So the sins of Adam and Eve, they caused their, it's no longer fellowship, no longer this, this communion, but now there's this, uh, there's this conflict. And you guys, listen, we live in a culture, we live in a world where if you've been married for any extent, um, extensive amount of time, you know what that looks like, where one day you can be walking in harmony with your wife, and then the next day something happens and there's no longer that harmony there anymore. You know what that looks like. You can, you can picture it in your mind. That's what happened between us and God. So what God did is God established a covenant in the Old Testament, and he set up what he called the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a tent. It was a very, very special place where people could go, and they could commune with God. Okay, They could have um, fellowship with God in a very, very limited way. So he set up a way in which they could fellowship with him. Then after the tabernacle, he sets up the temple. And then in the New Testament, he sets up a new covenant. And that new covenant is meant to make it possible for all of mankind to, to have communion with God again. Okay, So it's important that we, we understand that as we enter into this. What is the Lord pursuing with these covenants? Is He's pursuing a restored relationship with us. He wants to have a restored relationship with us. He wants to walk with you again. He wants to talk with you again. He wants to fellowship with you again. He wants to commune with you again. He likes you. Okay, I know that might be hard to, to, to grasp, but he, he likes you. And he wants to have that fellowship with you that he created you for in the garden with Adam and Eve. And now he's, he's really, for the last thousands of years, he has been on this process of restoring us back to that state. And the wonderful promises that we have in God's word is one day we will have this, this restored intimacy with the Lord that is ex exactly like what they had in the Garden of Eden. It's a, it's a wonderful promise in God's word. But he wants that. He wants us to have the most uh, intimacy that we can have with him while we're in this world today. He wants us to walk with him closely. 
The danger is that we have, and this is what this passage of Scripture really, really deals with, we have, a, we have a modern-day philosophy of come just as you are. And that's our theological perspective. It is, it is come just as you are into the presence of God, and he accepts you, and there's, and there's fellowship there, and there's communion there. And it's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a breaking away from the old covenant and this embracing of the new covenant that I believe according to what we're going to study this morning, is an, is an unhealthy breaking away from the old covenant. It defeats the purpose of the old covenant, and it creates a new covenant that doesn't even look anything like the old covenant. I mean, think with me for a moment. The old covenant is called a shadow, right? And, and if you have a, a bulletin, you will see that the title of this morning's message is, The Shadow is a True Reflection. The shadow is a true the shadow is a real reflection. If somebody were to send you a document and say, this is a copy, this is a copy of the original, and you were to take that and you were to read it and to study it, and then one day you were to see them. Matter of fact, I, I have a story written down here. This is a true story that one time I had somebody present me with a document. This was um, in my executive years before I was in the ministry that somebody presented me with a document and they said, here, read and review the document and then we'll get together and you can sign the original and we'll have an agreement together. So I read and studied the document and was ready to sign and set up a time that we could meet and sign this document. I came to this individual and we sat down together and he presented the original document. And you know what? It was nothing like the copy. It didn't look anything like the copy of the original. It was, and I said, this is not a copy of what you presented to me because they're different. And he, he went on to say, well, no, they're not that different. There might be a few little changes in there, but they're not that different. Well, at that point, I, I had um, began to doubt his integrity, which would be a natural thing to do, right? And I began to doubt his integrity, and so we never did come to a point where we were able to, to come to an agreement because I did not trust him for him to say to me, this is a copy of this, and they not look the same, right? Does not God call the new covenant a copy of the old covenant? Does he not say it is a copy? So if we are to believe that the, old, the new covenant is a copy of the old covenant, we expect it to look exactly the same, do we not? If the copy of the old covenant doesn't look exactly, if the copy doesn't look exactly the same, then we will, we will doubt the integrity of the one who's telling us it is a copy. It is a shadow. The old covenant is a copy. It is a shadow of the new covenant. And when we don't, when we, when we do, when we do away with this thinking and how we Come, when we come to the Lord and how we come to the Lord and what we think is necessary for coming to the Lord, when we do away with that, we make the old covenant look nothing like the new covenant and therefore they're no longer copies. And this is why people question the integrity of God. This is why people doubt the integrity of God. This is why people question God's honesty, the significance of his word. We want to see in these 10 verses that the old covenant is the same as the new covenant. We want to see the similarities. We want to see the harmony 
that takes place between the old covenant and the new covenant. One is a copy of the other. One is a shadow of the other. When you see a shadow, you expect, and the idea of shadow is not the the little thing making the big shadow. In this case, the idea of a shadow is, is that you are making a shadow. You expect them to look similar. These 10 verses, and really the whole of chapter number 9, we're not going to unfold it all this morning, but we'll unfold 10 verses. Really, the whole emphasis of chapter number 9 is to show the agreement between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It's to show the harmony that's there. And, and And in the end, hopefully we'll land where we need to land. Because there is a, there is a, there is one distinct difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. One distinct difference. And it's not a difference in the covenant. Okay? We'll find out what it is here before we're done. Let's read together, if you would, uh, join me in Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant... Now, now notice, if you go back to chapter number 8, the, the chapter is all about the supremacy and the superiority of the new covenant based upon Christ. In other words, Christ is superior to the Old Testament, to the first covenant priest, right? Okay, Christ is also a priest. So you have priest under the old covenant, you have, you have priest under the new covenant. It's the same, isn't it? The difference is not that you have priest and you don't have priest. The difference is, is the person that is standing in that role. The difference is, is the one who is accomplishing. So here's what he's saying in chapter number 9. He's saying, hey, don't be surprised that you have regulations for worship. Don't be surprised that there are regulations that you have to, you have to go through certain, certain parameters in order to enter into the presence of God. Not just anyone can enter into the presence of God. And he says this in verse number one. He says, even the Old Testament had parameters. So we want to remember this. The emphasis is, 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 is the fact that the New Testament doesn't minimize the parameters of entering into God's presence. It maximizes them. It elevates them. It's, it's Matthew 5 where he says, in the Old Testament I said, if you want to be in my presence, you should, not, you should not commit adultery. But in the New Testament I said, you should not even lust after a woman. In the Old Testament I said, you should not commit murder. In the New Testament I am saying to you, you should not even hate someone. It's an elevation of the law. It's not a minimization. We live in a mindset We live in a culture that says God doesn't demand anything of us anymore. God doesn't require anything. Just come as you are. This is is error. This is flaw. By embracing this, we minimize the significance of Christ. We minimize the significance of what he has accomplished for us. By minimizing the requirements of entering into God's presence, we, we, we... we ultimately lead people to, enter, to believing that they can enter into God's presence without Jesus. And therefore, people think that they're coming into God's presence on their own, in their own strength, in their own righteousness, and, and quote-unquote, worshiping God outside of his parameters and outside of his requirements. He says, I'm, I'm going to read on 
He says, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And again, what's he doing is he's comparing the two. He's not contrasting them. He's comparing them. Even the old covenant had regulations for worship. Even the old covenant had a place of holiness. A place where God dwelt. He goes on to describe it further. He says, for a tent, in verse 2, was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden urn holding the, in which was a golden urn holding a, um, a bowl of manna. And Aaron's staff that had budded. And the tablets of the covenant above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests going regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest could go, and he but once a year. I mean, just notice this for a moment. The ultimate presence of God, so each piece of the tabernacle was set up in such a way that each piece was was a picture of getting closer to God, okay? So you had the holy of holies, which was really the true presence of God. That was where people could, that's where the high priest could go, and only the high priest could go, and he could, he could meet with the Lord. And if you study history, you'll find that he met with the Lord for a very little amount of time. He didn't want to be in there any longer than he had to. And, and, but he met with the Lord one day out of the year, the holy, the holy place, which was outside of the Holy of Holies, was another section that was set apart for the preparation, for preparation to enter into the Holy of Holies. And they entered into that far more frequently. And then outside of that was the outer court, which is where the sacrifices were, were made so that the blood could be brought into the holy place and the Holy of Holies. And the sacrifices were made on a fairly regular basis but not ultimately entering into, the, um, entering into the Holy of Holies, which was only on the Day of Atonement. These, all these things come from the book of Leviticus and also Exodus, and, and some from other of the Pentateuch, Pentateuch books. If you want to study them out thoroughly, um, I would encourage you, the end of Exodus uh, chapter 25, 26 on, you will see some of these things unfolding. Um, Leviticus, I believe, uh, chapter 17, kind of on, you'll see some of this stuff unfolding. Sometimes these books uh, of the Bible kind of like, what does this mean? What is this all about? Listen, really, when you see what it took to enter into the presence of God, when you see what God required for his people to come into his presence, you will then begin to maximize Christ. You'll begin to see Christ for all that he has fulfilled and accomplished for us. So he entered in once a year, and he didn't enter without taking blood. And you guys know the requirements for the blood. It had to be pure. It had to be the first year lamb. It had to be lots of requirements that had to take place for this 
for this sacrifice to be acceptable. If there wasn't acceptable blood brought, the, the priest would not be accepted and he would die. Um, history would tell you that they would tie a, um, a rope around the, the high priest so that if he didn't come out in a period of time that they could then drag him out. Because entering into the presence of God was that serious. We don't take it very seriously today, do we? When you think about worshiping God, we just think of it as kind of a fun thing. But when we are entering into the presence of God, and worshiping God can be, the, the idea of worshiping God and entering into his presence, it's the same thing. That's why it says in verse number one, there are regulations for worship. It's the same thing. This was a serious, serious moment. Entering into the presence of God was a serious, serious thing. He says um, in verse, uh, at the end of, um, let's see here. Oh boy. Verse number six. Um, Verse number seven, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he goes but once a year and without taking, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Now it's also important to note, and I know I'm making a few comments as we go, but just bear with me. It's important to note that the unintentional sins of the people simply means this, okay? This is so important to get, that your unintentional sins also keep you from being accepted by God. Okay? So we think of unintentional sins as that's, that's okay. Well, I didn't do it on purpose, right? So if I didn't do it on purpose, then I cannot be held accountable for it. What he's saying here is, is that there was necessary for a sacrifice, not just to pay for your intentional sins, but there was necessary for you to enter into the presence of God. Somebody had to pay for your unintentional sins. Someone had to pay the price for the sins that you did unknowingly. And, and listen, we know the ones that we commit, but I don't think we can count the ones that we don't know. This is what he, this is what he means when he says that they made, he made sacrifices for his sins and for the unintentional sins. What he's saying is, is all the way down to the unintentional sins of the people. They all had to be paid for. And we live in a culture today that doesn't believe themselves to be sinful because they've been convinced that sin is not what sin is. And therefore, they are unintentional in all their sins. But may I submit to you that they will be held accountable even for their unintentional sins. There must be a price paid for all sins. The Bible says in verse number 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for this present age. And again, there were two sections. The first section was preparation to enter into the second section. As long as the first section was still standing, the, um, the uh, let's see here, the second section, as long as the first section is still standing, then there's limited access into the second section. And we'll discuss, we'll discuss that too. The Bible says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that idea of reformation, but the, the word is describing the time of change, uh, the time of transformation, the time of a new beginning. Okay, so it's important as we walk through this, we're going to make, we're going to make some connections here between the Old Testament 
the old covenant and the new covenant, the rituals, the rites, the regulations, the sacrifices, all of these things, we're going to make a reference to them in the new covenant and show how they are fulfilled in Christ. Okay, they're not removed. They're not insignificant to the new covenant. They're satisfied. All of the things that were required in the old covenant are also required in the new covenant. No one can enter into the presence of God unless the old covenant, old covenant is fulfilled and satisfied. No one can enter into God's presence unless that old, those sacrifices and ceremonies and those types of things are satisfied. So, so ask yourself this question, when you enter the presence of God, have you gone through this whole process of, of preparing to enter into the presence of God? And the answer we would all say is no. And the reality of it is, is could we possibly go through an external fleshly ceremonial process and make ourselves capable of entering into the presence of God? And the answer is we can't. But does, so, so the solution is this. Let's just throw it out, right? I can't enter into the presence of God because I've got all these regulations. It's like red tape, right? Governmental red tape. I got all these regulations in front of me, so I can't come to the presence of God, so let's just throw out all all of the red tape. What the Lord says is, no, the new covenant is not throwing out all the red tape. The new covenant is based upon the fulfillment of all of the red tape. It is the satisfaction of all that was required in the Old Testament that we are building on, and this is why we can enter into the presence of God. So let's look at four or five things this morning, briefly, from our text that will help us as we seek to have what I would call true intimacy and fellowship with our God. And if you're here, as I said last week, and your desire is to be intimate with God, then this will matter to you. If you're not pursuing intimacy with God, then some of this will not matter to you. It won't make sense. The Bible says in verse number one of chapter nine, now even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And I've titled this... um, this point, perimeters for worship. Again, remember, worship is simply entering into God's presence. It is being in the presence of God. It, could, it would be the same as the, the high priest entering into the um, holy of holies and being in God's presence. So regulations, that's the word that's used here. Some of your versions probably say a different word, but that's the idea. The word means they write by law an ordinance or something that is ordered ordained by God, or an established process, okay? This was a process, this was an ordinance, this was a law that was put forth so that we could, so that mankind could enter into God's presence and and then fellowship with him in a a limited way. We want to note a few things about this, about these regulations. Not just anyone could enter into God's presence for worship, not just anybody could enter into God's presence for worship. Matter of fact, there was a, a process of, of priest and high priest and then people who had to go through these processes in order to enter into God's presence for worship. And we know a few things about the priest. Number one is that they were chosen by God. They were appointed by God and they were anointed by God. In order to enter into God's presence, the priest had to be chosen. They had to be of the tribe of Levi. God uh, chose the tribe of, of Levi to carry out this role. They had to be of, the, of this tribe. There were characteristics 
that God chose to bless or to minister into these people so that they could enter into God's presence because not just anyone could enter into God's presence. The tabernacle was set up to where that there was only one gate, an, an, Easter, an Easter-sided gate, and that they only could enter into that place, into that gate, into the tabernacle area, the outer um, area, if they went through that gate, right? Remember what John says about him, about, you remember what Jesus says about himself in John chapter number 10? He says, I am the, I am the door, I am the gate. He says, if anybody comes in by me, they will find pasture. But he says, but there are some who try to come in another way. There are some who try to climb in uh, over the fence or try to get in another way. He says, these are imposters. They're not true believers because they do not come through the gate. There was one entryway. There was one place through which they could come into the tabernacle area, the outer courts, and they could be accepted in that area. And beyond that, there was the the, the holy place and the holy of holies in which there were, there were um, large curtains or veils that separated the people who were in the outer court who were just common Jews. Common Jews could go into the outer court. They could bring their sacrifice with them. They would present it. The priest would make the sacrifice in the outer court, bring it into the holy of holies or into the holy place, and then the, holy, uh, then the high priest would take the atonement sacrifice, which was once a year, and bring it into the holy of holies, the holiest place. But in each situation, there were parameters for who could enter into each section and who could not enter in. And again, we see this scenario playing out for us in John 10 with Jesus calling himself the door. We know that we can only enter into God's presence if we come through and in Christ, right? This is the picture. The Old Testament had this ceremonial, ritual, visual aid for us to know that we cannot enter into God's presence. We cannot worship him unless we come through the gate. And who is the gate? The gate is Jesus. Jesus says in John uh, chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. We only enter in, and no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. We only enter into a place of worship with God if we come through and in Christ Jesus. We cannot go in some other way. If we do go in some other way, we are imposters. People who try to worship God, in some other way, other than coming through Christ, are imposters, and they will be dealt with as imposters. They are tares that's growing up amongst the wheat. Here's what the Lord says to do about tares that's growing up amongst the wheat. He says, leave it until the end. He's like, don't pluck it up, because if you pluck it up, you'll pluck up some wheat too, right? Leave the tares there. Leave the imposters there. He says, at the end of the age, I will send my angels. They will come and they will pluck up the tares that have grown amongst the wheat. And then they will bind it up and do what with it? And they will cast it into fire. Which is a picture of what? It's a picture of eternal condemnation in hell. They will bind up the tares... These, those who have come in to worship God without going through Jesus Christ. Okay? It's, go back to the Old Testament. It'd be like somebody that wants to come in and worship God in the tabernacle, but climbs over the fence because they're not Jewish people. That was a requirement. 
This was for the Jewish people. They were not accepted through the gate, so they tried to come in another way. Or they might not be a priest, and they might think, well, I'm going to go into the holy place. And they would be rejected because they were not qualified to enter into that place. Or I'm not the high priest, but I'm going to enter into the holy of holies. And, And that was not something that you saw commonly done because there was an extraordinary fear over entering into that place because because death awaited those who entered inappropriately. There was a level of grace that might have uh, uh, happened to those who entered into places outside of that, but that was a place where if somebody entered in unworthily, immediate death. So you see that God has these parameters set up for which who and when and how people could enter into his presence how people could come and worship him, how people could come and be in the presence of God. And this was no small thing. A few occasions in the Bible where these things are distorted. I think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter number 6. You remember that the children of Israel decided to carry the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and that it set on this cart. So normally there would be these two long poles that went through the Ark of the Covenant and they would carry it and they would hold it. In this case, they put it on a cart and, the, and the, the animals stumbled along the way, and the ark began to fall, right? And, and Uzzah reaches out his hands to catch the ark. Makes sense, right? It's what we would all do. We're going to catch the ark from falling on the ground. The Bible says that when he touches the ark, he immediately dies. Immediately dies. This is something that's happening that is directly connected to the glory of God, directly connected to God's presence and God's character, that when it's not done exactly like God wants it to be done, people die. Moses seeks to find the Lord's glory. He asks the Lord, Lord, can I see your glory in Exodus 33? And he is told, if you see my glory, you will surely die. Entering into the glory of God, entering into the presence of God for worship in our own flesh, in our own way, for our own purposes, folks, is detrimental and dangerous. The priest Nadab and Abihu, they come in. These were priests who come in to make sacrifices to the Lord. They were drunk and they mixed alcohol with their, with their sacrifices. And the Bible says that the fire from the altar consumed them. This is not a small thing. This is not an insignificant thing. If you are coming to worship the Lord God of the universe, you must come correctly. You must come rightly. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, there's a group of people that are making the Lord's table, communion, the Lord's supper into something where they're getting drunk and they're getting full in their belly and they're casting out the poor people and the insignificant people that they cannot eat. What happens to them? They die. Parameters. God has parameters for people who worship him. This is not an insignificant thing. In Acts chapter number 5, you'll remember the story of of, um, the name is escaping me. Somebody tell me. Ananias and Sapphira. Thank you, brother. 
they came into the Lord's house, said, we brought all of our money from the cell of our home. They lied to the Lord. You know what happened to them? Anybody want to guess? They died. Dropped dead on the spot. This idea of entering into the presence of God is no insignificant thing. It's no small thing. When we come to worship God, we believe ourselves to be entering into his presence. We believe that he is here with us in all of his glory, with all of his holiness, justice, and righteousness, with all of his grace, mercy, and kindness. We believe that we're entering into the presence of the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who is the judge of the universe, who is perfectly righteous and holy in every way. We are entering into his presence. God, please help us never to take that lightly. While all of these things are true, none of the consequences that you've seen in these five or six illustrations are required by God. There, in the Bible, there's what's called the law of first mention. And what the law of first mention is, is once you see something happen in the Bible, it's a standard by which everything else could be treated, but it's not always treated that way. So I believe that there have been other people who have lied to the Holy Spirit, but haven't died. I believe that there have been other people who have taken the Lord's Supper in an incorrect way who haven't died, right? Would you guys agree with that? But the law of first mention says this, if God so desired to show his justice towards us, he could do those things and be righteous in doing it. In other words, he set a standard. If you're going to enter into my presence, if you're going to worship me, if you're going to do the things that I require of you, you better do it right. You better do it right. This is the parameters of worship. These parameters make it impossible. Note this. These parameters make it impossible for any man to enter into God's presence based upon his own merit. Let's not throw the parameters out. Let's embrace the fulfiller of those parameters. Let's embrace the one through whom we can enter God's presence because he has satisfied. So all of these parameters, all of these requirements, Jesus Christ perfectly satisfied. These parameters should cause us to have a humble heart towards ourselves and should have us a, and cause us to have a faithful heart towards Christ for us to experience true worship. So the first covenant, the old covenant had regulations. The new covenant has revelation, uh, regulations. The second thing that we see is a place of holiness. A place of holiness. So we start with parameters for worship. We go to now a place of worship. In the Old Testament, it was called the, the tabernacle or the temple. It was also in the, in the Garden of Eden, there was a, it was a place of worship. In the New Testament, we have the temple or tabernacle as well, but we also have the church. Um, but specifically, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. But these are places of worship. Exodus chapter number 26 describes these places of worship, and also our text describes some of the details. And I want to just walk through some of these details with you so that you can get a grasp on the significance of the, of the makeup of this tabernacle. In the wilderness, a tent that was movable, but it was not insignificant. It was significant. Some of the terms that came to my mind as I was 
thinking about and meditating on um, the tabernacle in the old covenant. And some of the words that came to my mind, number one was precision. Was precision. Everything about it was precise. To the point where the Holy of Holies was a perfect square. 15 by 15 by 15. The Holy of Holies was a perfect square. You say, that's, not, that's insignificant. It's not insignificant. It was the place where God's presence dwelt. What better place than for it to be in a perfect place? And obviously it wasn't perfect, but it was a picture of that perfection that his dwelling demanded. Precision, detail, purpose, beauty, value. When I, when I say purpose, I just mean that everything in the tabernacle had a purpose. It was, none of it was, none of it was um, flippantly placed there. Well, I think I'll have some lamps over here and uh, you know, some bread over here if we get hungry. You know, everything in the temple and the tabernacle was, was purposeful. Everything in the tabernacle was symbolic. It was real, but it was presenting or painting for us something about Christ. And everything in the tabernacle was holy. You also see in the tabernacle great value, um, priciness. Gold is used and overlaying everything that's put in, into, the, into the tabernacle. Ornateness. And we see even some churches today that try to match this, some... some um, some churches of certain religions that try to match the, you know, all of the gold and all of those things. They miss, they miss the true picture that the tabernacle was pointing to. The true tabernacle, Christ. And they want to still create that, but that's not the issue. It's not to recreate the old tabernacle. The issue is, is the, the old tabernacle has already been recreated and it's Christ. That's why he says, I will tear this tabernacle down and in three days I will rebuild it. And he says, what I'm speaking of is my, is my body. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but we'll get there. It's so encouraging and so strengthening. So the tabernacle was this, this holy place, this precise place, this purposeful place, this symbolic place. Only priests could enter. We talked about that. Only those who were ceremonial, ceremonial, ceremonially pure, only those who were set apart, sanctified, could enter into the holy place. It was a sacred place. It was a set apart place, a, a sanctified place. Listen to what the Lord says in Hebrews 12 and verse 14 as instruction to us. He says, strive for peace with every man and for holiness without which one will never see the Lord. Strive for peace with every man and holiness without which one will never see the Lord. There was this perfect holiness that was required ceremonially in the Old Testament, but not ceremonially in the New Testament. The perfect holiness that's required for anyone to enter into God's presence is a real perfection. A ceremonial perfection in the Old Testament because there was no one perfect. A real perfection is required for anybody to enter into God's presence under the new covenant. You there? Anybody entering into the presence of God on their own today? It's the same. A 
The tabernacle was made for God's dwelling among men. And it was meant to be a place of purity. All that was in the tabernacle, let's walk through those really quick. All that was in the tabernacle represented God and pointed to Christ. When you walked into the tabernacle, you walked into the holy place, you would look to your left and you would see seven, a lampstand with seven different candles on it, seven different lights on it. This is the only light in the holy, in the holy place. There was no other light there. And pure oil, if you read Leviticus 24, you will find that pure oil was expected, and also Exodus deals with this as well, pure oil was expected to be used in this lampstand that would light this room. Seven is the number of perfection, right? It's the number of completion. It's the number of fulfillment. Here's what the Lord is saying. When they walked into the holy place, they were lit by seven lights which were a representation of Jesus Christ, the light of the world in perfect, fulfilling light, needing no other light. And then the reality of it is this morning is, is there is no other light. When you're talking about spiritual light, there is no other light than Jesus Christ himself. There is no other way to see. If you walk into the Holy of Holies and Jesus Christ is not shining, you are in darkness. He is not just light. He is the perfect light. He is the complete light. He is the fulfilled light. He is all the light that we need. Jesus Christ is the full illumination. Seven candles lighting and showing forth the only light in the place where God's presence dwells. Think about it for a moment. When we enter into the presence of God, we must enter in based upon the light of Jesus Christ. You guys are familiar with John 1 where it says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. I've often prayed in this sanctuary, Lord, help us not to need bulbs anymore. I mean, why not? This place is not about the physical, is it? It's about what's going on inside of us. Lord, help us not to need bulbs anymore. May your light, listen to me, the Bible tells us in Revelations that heaven will be such a place that there will be no need for light. Why? Because the Bible says that the Lamb will be the light in heaven. And who is the Lamb? Jesus Christ. Lord God, help us not to need bulbs anymore. Help us not to need man's way of creating light in our lives. Lord, help us to bask in the glories of your light. Jesus Christ is that light. The verse I quoted to you, if you're taking notes, was Revelation 21, 23. And the city had no need for the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exciting? We can only come into the presence of God if we go through the outer, the the holy place to enter into God's presence, which is a place where God's light, Christ's light, is the only thing shining. I would submit to you that one of the, one of the hindrances to our entering into God's presence today is it's too much of our light shining and too little of his light shining. Next, if you turn and look to your right as you enter into the holy place, it's the table of showbread. The, the bread of the presence is what, it, what it's called as well. Um, this was in the holy place as well. Twelve loaves, they were baked on the first of, of, the, of the, they were baked, they were baked 
on the um, uh, Day of Atonement, or, or I believe the Day of Atonement, but they were kept for a week, and then the high priest would eat them at the end of that, or the priest would eat them to, to, to find satisfaction. They were the only ones who were worthy to eat them. They were representation. Twelve loaves was a representation, one of each tribe of the children of Israel. Again, they were only eaten by the... They were, they were baked on the Sabbath. Forgive me. They were baked on the Sabbath. And then the priest would eat them a week later. At the end of that week, they would consume them. This is a picture of God's provision for the people. You can go back to the wandering in the wilderness and you can see this fulfillment in the manna. But more than that, Jesus Christ says in John 6, I am the, I am the bread. I am the, you cannot come into the, to the tabernacle without going through the gate. And Jesus says, I am the gate. You cannot have light in the holy place without having these seven candles lit. And Jesus says, I am the light. You cannot have sustenance without eating the bread. And Jesus says, I am the, you guys, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there, amen? Now you walk past these two, these two symbols of Christ and you walk to the end of the holy place. Some believe that the altar of incense was in the holy place. Others believe that the altar of incense was in the holy of holies as you walked through the, through the, uh, the veil. And there's some honest debate over that. The idea was, as you entered into the holy place with this altar, after passing through this altar of incense. And this incense was where they would take the coals from the sacrifice offering, where the sacrifices were being made. They would take the hot coals, and they would put them on the altar of incense, and that would be a, an aroma to God. It's also a picture in the scriptures of the prayers of the saints. It's set in the center right before or right after the veil would open as you entered into the holy place. So you picture this prayer of the saints. When you think of the prayer of the saints, the idea is intercession. As the high priest would enter, there would be people all outside and they would be praying for him. They would be interceding for him as he entered into this most holy place that God would accept him, that God would accept his sacrifice and God would deliver his people from their sins. That was the prayer of these saints. That was the intercessory prayer of the saints. Jesus Christ is called our intercessor. Jesus, in the same way that this, that this altar of incense sits there with the in, representing the in, intercessory prayers of the saints, in the same way, Jesus Christ is our intercessor. Revelation 5 and verse 8, the Bible says, and when they had taken the scroll and the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Who is our intercessor? Jesus Christ is our intercessor. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 the Bible says this, we've just focused on this a few weeks ago, consequently he is able to save those to the, to the uttermost who are drawing near to God through him, we're drawing near to God through him who ever lives to make intercession for us. We draw near to God through the intercessory prayers of Christ. That is the altar of incense. Now we get to the Ark of the Covenant. This is the one 
likely, likely the one furniture in the Holy of Holies. The altar of incense or the Ark of the Covenant consisted of a few elements. I'm just going to walk through them very quickly. The tarp, the top of the Ark was called the mercy seat. Okay? On the tarp, top was the mercy seat. And then there were two angelic beings that were hovering over the mercy seat. The Bible says that that is where God met man. Exodus 25, if you want to read it in verse 22, God meets man at the mercy seat. And it's a wonderful thing because if you understand what mercy is, mercy is when men don't get what they deserve. Okay? So whenever we meet God, just remember this, whenever we meet God and are accepted and not condemned, it's always based upon what? It's always based upon mercy. 100% of the time, it is mercy if you meet God and are not condemned. This is where they meet God. The same Greek word is used in 1 John 2, which is describing the propitiation, that Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sins. In other words, this is the place where God's wrath is satisfied towards mankind, and mankind is accepted. The reality of it is, is this, when the high priest would leave the Holy of Holies and leave the holy place and the people would see him, they would celebrate because they knew that they, would, they had been accepted by God for a season. So the top was the mercy seat. This was where the blood was sprinkled from the sacrifice. The blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. Okay, so just notice this. Follow with me, if you will. There were three ingredients in this in this ark, three ingredients, okay? You remember what they were? The tablet of the Ten Commandments, right? The, bill, the budding rod of Aaron, when Aaron's rod budded, and then the bowl of manna, okay? So these three things were in the ark, and on the top was the mercy seat where the blood was sprinkled. The ark was sprinkled with blood, and all of these things were in the ark, Okay, so we could say that the show that the manna, that the Ten Commandments, and that Aaron's rod budding were all under the blood. They were all under the blood. The mercy was over, the blood was over the Ten Commandments. The blood was over the rod of Aaron budding. The blood was over the manna. So let's think about it for a moment. What did the Ten Commandments represent? The Ten Commandments represented God's people in rebellion against God. God's people, when, God, when Moses brings the Ten Commandments down off the mountain the first time, do you know what he finds the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Do you know what the Ten Commandments tell us? The Ten Commandments tell us that we are guilty. The Ten Commandments tell us that we are unworthy, that we are incapable of entering into God's presence on our own. The Ten Commandments represents man's inability to obey God's law. The Ten Commandments represents man's inability to enter God's presence. But the Ten Commandments are under the, they're under the blood. Isn't that good to know? The Ten Commandments are under the blood. The bowl of manna. What did the bowl of manna represent? Do you remember why God sent them manna? Because they were what? Because they were grumbling. 
They were murmuring. They were complaining. We're hungry. We need food. Murmuring and complaining, God gives them manna. But you know something? Murmuring and complaining are under under the blood. Do you remember when God made Aaron's rod bud in the book of Numbers? Does anybody remember why Aaron's rod had to bud? Because somebody else wanted to be priest. Somebody else wanted to take that role. Didn't think Aaron should be the one that would be priest. But if you remember correctly, Korah thought he should be the priest. You know what the Lord said to him? I will show you who will be priest. Aaron will be priest. Aaron is the one that I chose. He brings in in these staffs from all the different tribes of Israel. And he says the one that buds is the one that I'm going to bless. The rebellion of God's people is under the under the blood. It's under the blood. Meaning that here is, if you could capture in three simple phrases, rebellion, complaining, and disobedience would be the three sins. Listen to me, they're the three sins of our day too. They would be the three sins that the children of Israel were most known for. And by the grace of God, they are under the blood. Sins of rebellion, complaining, and disobedience. But in the ark, they were under the blood and they were under mercy. This is a picture. This is a, an analogy. This is a, a representation of what it's like for us. Do you remember where Noah was safe? Noah was safe because he was in the, he was in the ark. Do you know where the Ten Commandments and the, the rod and the manna was safe? Where it was in the ark. Do you know where we're safe? Where are we safe? When we are in the ark. And I'm going to close. I'm, I'm going to have to finish this up next week, but I want to close with this thought. 106 times in the New Testament and 100 times in the church epistles, the term in Christ is used. Do you know how we enter into the presence of God? Do you know how we enter into the presence? Listen to me. All of the rules and regulations are still there. All of the parameters are still there. All of the perfection is still demanded. We do not enter into the presence of God because the the commandments have been removed. We enter into the presence of God because we dwell in the one who fulfilled them. This is the exaltation of Christ. He is the fulfillment of all of God's requirements so that he can enter into God's presence and all of those who are in him. Literally, we're clothed in his righteousness. We bear his name. We enter in not because we are worthy, but because he is worthy. Listen to me. 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus was treated as if he had lived our lives so that one day we could be treated as if we lived his life. This is the most extraordinary act of mercy and grace that man could ever imagine. But listen, folks, if we remove the requirements of God, we minimize the accomplishments of Jesus. Let us come to worship God in perfection because we come in Christ. Let us never come to worship God not in Christ.
The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Romans 8 and verse 1 says, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 3 says this, for you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ. The hope that we have this morning of entering into the presence of God for what I would call true worship, true intimacy with God, true walking, true fellowship with God. The only way that we can enter is if we are in Christ. And the only way to get in Christ is by faith. True worship is discovering. True worship is the result of discovering Jesus Christ as the only light. It is the result of discovering Jesus Christ as the true bread. It is the result of discovering Jesus Christ as the only worthy intercessor. Jesus Christ is the provider and gifter of mercy for our sins. And he is the one in which we enter into God's presence and are accepted. True worship comes from being in Christ by faith. I'm going to close with this verse, John 4 and verse 24. And with all that I've said this morning, this verse should make sense. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in whose spirit? His spirit. If we're going to worship God, we must worship in his spirit and in I am the way, the Listen to me this morning. God has not dumbed down his requirements. What he has done is he has fulfilled them. And he has offered to you as a free gift. Not that you have to work for, not that you have to earn, not that you have to deserve, but he's offering to you a free gift of entering into a relationship with him that brings you into a relationship with God. All we do is believe it. All we do is trust it. All we do is embrace it. And listen, God is greatly glorified. And we are restored into a joyful, peaceful harmony with him. There's no one in this world that it's more important that you have intimacy with than God. And I would say this to you, your wife is pretty important, your husband is pretty important, but there is no one more important than you have an intimate relationship with than God. And the only way is if you come in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the work that you have done on on our behalf, for the, um, the access that you've given us. You said we can come boldly into your throne because we have a high priest that has interceded on our behalf, has paid for our sins, has given us as a gift your righteousness by indwelling us, has put us in Christ, and we can now come boldly and, and find help and strength and, and endurance based around the testimony and reputation of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to embrace that truth today, that our life 
will never be the same, that we will experience your glorious presence in our life like we never have before because we walk in Christ. Please help us, Lord God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.